Welcome to Southern Discomfort. This is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. Southern tales of the weird, wild, mysterious, unusual, voodoo, Voodoo. cryptids, hauntings. Are you intrigued yet? This is Southern Discomfort. Southern Discomfort. And now, your hosts, April and Christine. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Southern Discomfort. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. And if you are returning, then welcome back. Tonight we have a special guest, but before we do that, I will introduce myself. My name is April, and with me always is my co-host, Christy. And I'm your guest host, Kristen. Yes, back by popular demand. We have returning guests in the house. And before we uh, talk about the drink du jour, let me just remind you guys about our socials. Twitter is so disco PC. Email, that's not a social, but okay. Um, Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. Instagram, Southern Discomfort PC. Facebook, Southern Discomfort Podcast. YouTube, Southern Discomfort Podcast, like, subscribe, and hit the bell. Comment if you have a story you want to hear us cover. Um, you can find us on Podbean, Southern, Dis- Southern Discomfort at podbean.com, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. Without further ado, what is the drink du jour? Tonight, we have a IPA from my favorite brewing company, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Southern Prohibition Brewing, or the locals call it SoPro. And it's Mississippi Fire Ant. It's an Imperial Red Ale. It is 8% APV, and it has dark mahogany red with a nice fluffy head. And the Fire Ant showcases roasted and toasted caramel notes layered between spicy, fruity, and herbal hops. So let's open this up. It's a taste. Well, I did that before you drank it. Oh, my gosh. It's not bad. Oh. I just knew by fire ant it was going to be like, yep, that's what a fire ant feels like. But, no, it's really good. It's smooth. I like it. It has a little bite so of the Mississippi. It, it, and tonight we're talking about southern serial killers. So, y'all get ready and buckle in and buckle up. I mean, it's the same thing, but just make sure you're secure. And get uncomfortable. Yes. Okay, so Kristen, you want to make us uncomfortable? Certainly. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to start off tonight um, with an interesting story that I kind of stumbled upon. Um, It's called the Storyville Slayer. Um, The Storyville Slayer was also referenced as the New Orleans serial killer and Clay the serial killer. The Storyville Slayer is a nickname given to an American serial killer who was suspected of killing at least 24 sex workers and drug addicts, most of whom were women in the New Orleans area through the 1990s. Um, The span of the crimes were from summer of 91 to 1996. Um, And the perpetrator or perpetrators primarily targeted girls and women of African-American descent aged between 17 and 42. Most of them were strangled to death, while a number of others were beaten and drowned in canals and rivers, and then dumped in swamps, rivers, and canals near highways bordering the western shores of Lake Pontchartrain. 
Um, and due to the isolated locations of the dumping sites, the victims' bodies were left in water spanning from several weeks to several years, resulting in extreme decomposition and destruction of incriminating evidence. Seven of the victims were never identified because of this. Um, there was a task force between New Orleans Police Department and the FBI that was put together to find the alleged serial killer. And interestingly, uh, the beginning of the story made an appearance on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in 1992. Uh, so just a little disclaimer, I feel that it's important to note that because there were only two primary suspects um, and majority of these killings are unsolved, the confirmed investigative data that was released to the public is actually minimal. Um, so this story that I'm telling you tonight is being pieced together via some Wikipedia sources and several different news stories and a Louisiana uh, Court of Appeal document that's online. So the killing timelines. According to the investigators, the crimes began in the summer of 1991 after a young black woman informed police about an attempt on her life. According to her testimony, she had boarded the car of an unknown man in Algiers um, sometime in July. And after having a conversation with him, the man strangled her into unconsciousness and dropped her off in the streets. Her name was never disclosed, and she refer, uh, she's referred to as Brenda in all of the case files. During her testimony, uh, Brenda gave a description of her attacker. She described him as a muscular, well-dressed, middle-aged black male who drove a dark-colored vehicle. Um, so in 1992, Brenda was the one that was interviewed by Unsolved Mysteries about what happened to her. Um, Did they blur out her... They probably, you probably didn't find that in the, I did not. In the information. Um, but because they never released her name, I'm assuming that she, her identity was kept under lock and key. When did you stop watching Unsolved Mysteries, April? Oh, um, I don't know. It was in the 90s, I feel like. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how yeah, far this, it, it went. It's, sorry, I didn't mean to, to be real, <laughs> but it's just incredible. I know. I don't remember this one. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to touch on that a little bit later because I spoke to a lot of people about this particular, like, alleged serial killings that happened around this area. And nobody, nobody remembered it. Wow. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I just, I debated on keeping this part a little bit shorter, but I'm about to throw a lot of names at you. Um, I feel like I need to say their names because majority of the um, senseless murders didn't get justice, um, I felt like I wanted to pay my respect by saying all of their names. Absolutely. So, um, after uh, Brenda was attacked, there were five documented murders in 1991. Between August 4th and November 21st, 17-year-old Danielle Britton was found in a ditch not far from where Brenda had been abducted. 21-year-old Tyra Tassin, a mother of three, was also found. Um, she had a criminal record and uh, for drug possession. 28-year-old uh, Charlene Price was found in New Orleans Park, just one mile from where Britain was found, um, and she had a history of drug abuse. 37-year-old um, Regina Oko, a mother of three, um, had multiple arrests for prostitution. She was found. Her autopsy showed that she had taken a large dose of cocaine, which could have caused an overdose. However, she was strangled prior to her death. Um, keep this in mind, because this might come back into play a little bit later. 
On December 14, 1991, skeletal remains were found in a ditch near a highway, and this was Jane Doe number one. There are four documented murders in 1992. Uh, between January 4th and September 21st, 29-year-old Lydia Madison was found in a ditch under an overpass. She had a history of drug abuse um, and prostitution. 25-year-old George Williams' body was found in the LaBranche Westlands area of St. Charles Parish. Investigators determined that she was a transsexual, had feminine features, and worked as an exotic dancer in a New Orleans nightclub. Like previous victims, Williams had a drug, was a drug addict and had been arrested for robbery and drug possession. 33-year-old Noah Filson was found in the waters of a canal near I-55. Um, like Williams, Phils like Williams, Filson was a transsexual and worked in a nightclub under the name of Brenda Bewitch. Um, and then 29-year-old Regita Martin, a mother of three, her remains were discovered in the waters of another canal near a highway, and she had had several previous arrests for prostitution. So there's definitely a theme. There's a here. theme. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1992, um, the Brenda, who was attacked, um, was the first, gave a sketch of the suspected killer. And when the NOPD released this sketch, the serial went on a five. The serial killer went on a five-month hiatus. So mind you, at this point, there was a killing almost each month. Right. Um, and then took a five-month hiatus. So there were two documented murders in 1993. On February 20th of 1993, the skeletal remains of 30-year-old Cheryl Lewis were discovered in the waters of a canal near Hanville. Uh, like the previous victims, Lewis was an impoverished mother of four, a known prostitute with several arrests who had been strangled to death. While investigating her death, authorities learned that she was last seen alive on February 2nd getting into a car of an unidentified white male. This victim is important because it produced a suspect, but not in the way you might think. On February 21st, the next day, 42-year-old Dolores Mack was found in the waters of a canal near a highway not far from um, the Lewis crime scene. She, too, had been strangled, but unlike majority of the other victims, she had no known history of either drugs or prostitution. Interesting. So during this period, according to investigators, the killer, or killers, committed several other murders, but due to various circumstances, the bodies weren't found um, until, the early until early 1994. So my question on that is, uh, did the sketch that was released force the killer to get a little creative on where, they, where he or they were dumping their victims? Um, so in 1994, there were eight documented murders. So it seems to me like we're ramping up a little bit. Um, between February 5th and October 19th, skeletal remains were found in the St. John the Baptist Parish, later determined to be a young woman between the ages of 25 and 35. She had been strangled. She still remains unidentified and is referred to as John Jane Doe number two. Wow. Five days later, more skeletal remains were found, this time to a girl whose age is estimated to be around 15 to 17. And due to extreme decomposition, she too remained unidentified, unidentified and is named Jane Doe number three. Wow. Um, 
So 25-year-old Stephanie Murray's body was found in a small pond near Bonnie Carey Spillway. Two days later, the skeletal remains of another young girl were found, whose identity was never ascertained, Jane Doe number 4. On April 2nd, two sets of skeletal remains were found in a canal, um, later determined to be of a young woman and a young man, and due to extreme decomposition, neither could be identified, and they're referred to as Jane Doe number 5 and John Doe number 1. On July 3rd, 1994, a 32-year-old Michelle Foster, who had gone missing in New Orleans just days prior, was found. And then skeletal remains of a woman were found in a wooded area near a highway within the limits of Bridge City. Uh, she was later identified as 28-year-old Stephanie Brown, who had no prior criminal record. So in 1995, there were seven documented murders between January 22nd and March 24th. 29-year-old impoverished mother of three, Wanda Ford, was found in a swamp near I-55. During her lifetime, she had been arrested multiple times for theft and was a known drug addict. 39-year-old Sandra Warner was found in St. John the Baptist Parish. 25-year-old Henry Calvin's remains were found. They had gone missing months earlier from New Orleans. Police found more skeletal remains under an overpass in Tangipahoa Parish. While the remains were determined to be a female, authorities were unable to identify the victim, and she's listed as Jane Doe number 6. Her estimated age was between 25 and 35. On April 30, 1995, the bodies of two women were found in a swampy area near I-55. The victims were later identified as Karen Ivester and Sharon Robinson, 30 and 28 respectively. Autopsies determined that Ivester had been strangled while Robinson had been beaten and strangled, but the presence of water in her lungs indicated that the cause of death had been drowning. These deaths are also important to the story and the timeline of events because it produced a second suspect. On May 6, 1995, the body of 39-year-old Sandra Williams, who had been strangled, was found on a boulevard in New Orleans, and according to the official investigation, the murders ceased following her death. So okay. she was the last to die in the serial killings. However, 11 months after the final body was found, police discovered additional skeletal remains on April 8, 1996. She was later identified as 39-year-old Lola Porter, who had gone missing from New Orleans in 1992. Mm. Police later interviewed her friends and acquaintances who stated that she had been... Um, living with a white male who vanished shortly after she went missing. Okay. So this brings us to um, multiple killers. So through the course of the investigation, two separate suspects were considered, one of whom was convicted of only one murder, leading investigators to believe that multiple, multiple killers are potentially responsible, but they still considered it a serial killer and serial killings because of the similarity between all of the victims and the serial killer's profile. I don't know if I said that right. So they did... Okay, so I'm just trying to work this out. So they... They... They suspected multiple killers, but yet a serial method of... I mean, that's what's kind of... They classified it as serial killings, but they only they had two suspects um, and only two suspects in relationship to all of these killings. And I kind of break down why each suspect was um, considered as being responsible. Um, 
but they did say that there is a possibility that there was multiple killers. I mean, I can see that for sure. It's just, and I probably am jumping ahead, but, you know, I guess in the other thing that I'm curious about is during that time, and we talked about this offline, but were there, was the media making connections with any of these murders? Yeah, and that's something that I kind of touched base on because, um, there was a sketch released, but at the time the sketch was released, it was only in association with an attempted mm. killing okay. or an attempted, you know, she was strangled and essentially left for dead. So I don't know if they ever associated the sketch of the African-American um, suspect to these killings until later on. Okay, And then it's... To me, there was two different, there was the NOPD investigation, and then there was the task force by the FBI that was done several years later. So okay. I just don't know if they were able to connect the dots. Um, so two primary suspects were Victor Gant and Russell Elwood. So let's talk about Victor. Okay. So Victor Gant, 1995 New Orleans police officer Victor Gant was listed as a prime suspect in the murders of his girlfriend, Sharon Robinson a New Orleans casino employee, and her friend Karen Ivester, who was allegedly a prostitute and fit the alleged serial killer's victim profile. Mm. A native of New Orleans, Gant spent his childhood and youth in Algiers, where a number of the victims lived and were abducted from. Uh, he, beca he became a police officer in February of 1980, and while on patrol... Gant would spend a lot of time in the red light districts yeah. where later years he acquired many acquaintances among pimps and prostitutes mm. and street informants. So in the early 1990s, Gant's Gant um, had gained a reputation for being corrupt after a number of informants reported that he, along with a few others, were running a racketeering operation yes. against pimps I've and heard. other criminals. You know, I've, he I've heard this part. Yeah, I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. Okay. So my question on that is, is could this have been where the victims were yeah. chosen, where they were identified or targeted? Yeah. It's just yeah. one of those things that was never I really answered. I think it's highly probable. Yeah. So although he was a suspect, Gant remained at his desk job with the NOPD. Um, he reportedly submitted blood and tissue samples for the investigation, but the results were inconclusive and no charges were ever filed against him. Um, he was dismissed from the force in August of 1996. Um, he was arrested shortly after his dismissal for simple battery in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Um, those charges were dropped when the accused decided not to testify in court. So Gant had left New Orleans in 1996 and moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where he presumably still lives today. I just kind of find a kind of <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I find it kind of suspicious that the killing stopped when Gant left New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's still a lot of speculation of his involvement in these serial killings, but he was only ever associated with two deaths, two of the murders. And he just left and then nothing ever Yep, everything came of it. stopped. Yep. Okay. So the second suspect um, was Russell Elwood, and I will say that um, his his story and how he became a suspect is what brought me to this story and, and wanting to share it with you guys. So Russell Elwood is a native of Massillon, Ohio. 
Um, he moved to New Orleans in 1968 after graduating high school, and for the next 30 years, he struggled with drug addiction. Um, he was arrested several times from 1968 to 1998 for drug addiction. Um, he was a struggling freelance photographer and a taxi driver that was often described as an outsider who constantly sought to make get-rich-quick schemes but consistently failed in his endeavors, um, and he would live in his car from time to time when he couldn't afford to live anywhere else. So Elwood first came under police scrutiny in 1994 after he was allegedly found masturbating in his car by police, which had been parked on the road roughly a mile from where Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack's bodies were found. A I'm sure that wasn't awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a partially undressed Elwood was forced out of his car and told to show his driver's license. His explanation for stopping was to apparently change the oil and repair his brake pads of his car. <laughs> he willingly allowed a search of the vehicle, um, and the officers found none of the items required for the fixes, not even a flashlight, which was necessary to perform such repairs in an unlit area at night. I mean, I guess that's one way to refer to changing your oil. I mean... Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There you go. <laughs> Gotta go so, change um, the oil. so uh elwood was questioned regarding the murders and he was later booked as a suspect um there were reports of drug paraphernalia found in his car car but there was no confirmation of that so during interrogations um he admitted to frequenting black prostitutes throughout his life claiming that he knew more than 100 girls um, he also uh, admitted to taking drugs such as heroin, crack cocaine, and LSD over the years. Um, the investigators became inc increasingly suspicious when Elwood started speaking about having a dream in which she was being questioned about a series of murders and later admitting to frequenting the locations where the bodies were found but continued to reaffirm his innocence. Um, so this is where things uh, get somewhat weird and interesting. Um, and let me back up. So this is where things get um, somewhat weird and interesting. On August 4th, 1997, just days after interrogations were completed, Elwood was arrested for buying cocaine from an undercover police officer at his home in Sebring, Florida. As a result, he was convicted and sentenced to 85 days in, count in the county jail. Okay, so this is where things get somewhat weird and interesting. On August 4th, 1997, just days after the interrogations were completed, Elwood was arrested for buying cocaine from an undercover police officer at his home in Sebring, Florida. And as a result, he was convicted and sentenced to spend 85 days in the county jail. On August 13th, 1997, nine days later, the Howard Stern Show received a call from a man who identified himself as Clay. During the conversation with host Howard Stern, which was broadcast live, um, Clay described details for more than 12 murders and gave some details about his background, indicating that he was a white resident of New Orleans. This... Um, this man was suspected to be the one and only Russell Elwood. Um, Clay, the serial killer, also told the show that the NOPD's main suspect in the serial killings was a black police officer. 
Supposedly, the NOPD and the task force had never released that information to the public, but somehow Clay knew about it, and he was right. So this is where I get a little, like, I'm just not sure. So didn't a sketch of, the, of an African-American get released by the NOPD in 1992 that caused a five-month hiatus? Yeah. Um, now, this sketch release was prior to the FBI task force, so I don't know if NOPD and the FBI task force pieced it together that, you know, as far as that being a suspect for the serial killings. Right. But how would, I mean, if Clay, the serial killer, knew this information, he could have pieced together that, I'm not sure. And then the other question is, was Gant ever publicly associated with the sketch that Brenda provided? I mean, he did fit the suspect description, but I don't know if they ever suspected Gant of Brenda's assault. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how they could say that they never released that information when I do kind of think that they did just maybe not so much in relationship to the serial killings as much as it was the assault. Well, it was, it, it, it got out some, some kind of way, whether it was that or, or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how Clay, the serial killer knew this information. But the Howard Stern show, like yeah. it calls the Howard Stern. I know show. that's true. what they do, though. <laughs> the crazies, they they do crazy. <laughs> well, so the FBI retrieved the tape, and they were un- unable to identify the caller. Um, so they actually, there was a lot of speculation from um, fans of the show, and actually people who were following this story that it was fake and created just to get new listeners. Yeah, but... So I just don't know how you can call and have information that wasn't released to the public. How can you fake that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, while um, Elwood was completing his 85-day sentence, uh, according to his cellmates, uh, he implicated himself in the prostitute killings back in New Orleans and its various suburbs. One of them, um, one of the cellmates, Stan Hill, contacted the county prosecutor's office and claimed that Elwood had described to him in detail how he had driven women to the outlying areas of the city, offering them large quantities of drugs that caused overdoses, then strangled and dumped their bodies. So that goes back to Regina Oko's autopsy. Um, Her results come into mind because that right there could be a connection from one of the murders to Elwood. Yeah. Several other inmates witnessed a fight between Elwood and another inmate during which he allegedly said, yeah, I killed that, and it was an inappropriate word, um, bitch. (laughs) Uh, I'll kill you too. So basically he said, I killed that African-American bitch, um, and I'll kill you too. Another inmate, Stephen Michael Busser, also told police that Elwood had boasted of being wanted for more than 60 murders within the state of Louisiana, and had even described to him in detail one of the murders. So, I have a couple of thoughts on this, and I <laughs> yeah. wanted to pause the story for a second. So, if Elwood was arrested on August 4th of 1997 and was convicted and sentenced to spend 85 days in county jail, does that fit the timeline with the Howard Stern call? Like, how long does it take between getting arrested, convicted, and sentenced in the state of Florida? Um, and if he was in jail... Nine days later, wouldn't that call, wouldn't there be a record of that call? Yeah, there should be. So I'm not entirely convinced that Russell Elwood is Clay the serial killer. 
No, but it could have been somebody close to. Well, and this uh, goes yeah. into another theory that I have that goes back to the racketeering. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gant's participation in this, like, was it multiple killers who were working together that had... Oh, yeah, right. Like, like, if he was part of that ring, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if it's a part of that racketeering ring, if, you know, strangling and identifying strangling and dumping the bodies was a part of their racketeering, I don't know. I mean, it, it yeah. really could have been. And and I think it goes back to, it may not, but I feel like it goes back to, and I know you're going to touch upon this, but there if there's no media coverage and nobody is following this story nobody's publishing anything then then there's you know there's no documentation other than police reports of what's going on and right. you know who's gonna who's gonna nobody's gonna have a proclivity to to to, to seek police records well and you know one of the things that i was thinking about is nobody's banging down doors trying right. to find out who's killing these I ladies. I was just thinking that too, yeah. So there's no pressure. Right. There's no pressure from anybody, you know, maybe some of the family members, but at this time, I mean, do they know that it's a serial killer? Because the task force wasn't put together until later. And they chose, and, well... Yeah, that they, was... What time frame was that? What's... I'm sorry, what did you The time frame on that. Was that, was that into the 90s? That one. Yeah, it was from 1991 um, to 1996, and I think the task force was put together in 1995. But see, I think it, I think it's you know a chosen group of people that, you know, whoever's whoever the killer is, knows that society's not gonna you know go looking for. I mean, six of them yeah. weren't even identified. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking that they maybe that. they didn't have right. any family members to identify them or to report them as missing. But then it could be that gang guy was uh, with the police. So, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. There's there's so many holes in this. Um, it really it's really interesting. So, um, after his release, Elwood returned to Canton, Ohio, to live with his brother. Um, based on Stan Hill's testimony, the task force had tracked him down to re-interview him in the presence of Ron, Ron Camden, a 27-year-old veteran of the Cincinnati Police Department Homicide Unit. Um, so during the interrogation, Elwood initially denied making any statements to the inmates, but after an audio tape of Hill's testimony was played, he admitted that he indeed boasted to Hill about the killings. Um, Camden later testified that Elwood also confessed to him that he had killed a black girl whose corpse he had dumped in a canal. No recording of this confession was taken, and Elwood later denied even confessing to such a murder to, Cam to, to Camden. Um, Elwood later claimed that a mental illness had caused him to boast, demanding <laughs> that interrogation cease and he be allowed to return to new orleans to see his attorney and be provided with treatment What's the name of that one yeah so um <laughs> that request was denied um and then elwood allegedly confessed to killing uh lewis and mac but refused to be audio taped and soon after began denying that he confessed anything at all walked every single one of them back yeah so eventually he was released again 
and in January of 1998, he returned to New Orleans. On January 16th, he was stopped by traffic cops for speeding and was scheduled to appear in court. He failed to appear on time and subsequently was arrested for contempt of court. Um, he was eventually convicted and ordered to spend 120 days behind bars. And while he was incarcerated, authorities tra finally charged him with the murders of Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack. This was on March 4th of 1998. So the trial began um, June 8th, 1999 in Lafayette. I could not find any documentation to indicate why he was tried in Lafayette. As opposed to too. being tried in New Orleans. A change um, of venue. So during, I'm sorry? Oh, change of venue, probably. Okay. Um, yeah, I couldn't find anything that indicated why that was um, chosen. But during the proceedings, a number of um, Elwood's former cellmates and prostitutes testified as prosecution witnesses. Uh, with the cellmates claiming that he had confessed to the killings while the prostitutes claimed that he had assaulted them. Um, Diane Gilliam, a former prostitute, had told court that she had known Elwood since early 1990s and had dated him periodically. Uh, she testified that in 1992, during a date, Elwood, while under the influence of drugs, assaulted, beat, and strangled her into unconsciousness. Uh, Gilliam stated she woke up to find herself in a pool of blood in an unfamiliar wooded area where a passing motorist found her by chance and sheltered her at a motel that he was staying at. She said she never reported the incident due to being a prostitute with a criminal record. And so this is all like during, I guess, the beginning of DNA and whatnot, but this sounds like circumstantial evidence. You know, it was, I think, that coupled with isn't aren't aren't they the ones whose bodies were found near him in the car masturbating yeah he okay. was he was so interesting enough like he was not even on the police radar as a suspect until he went back to the scene of the crime to masturbate yeah that's okay. when he became a suspect okay and then all of these things started um, coming to play and all of these people started coming forward saying that while he you know while he was in jail he said all of these things and then this prostitute former prostitute stated essentially that he attempted to mm -hmm. murder her yeah you know so it's interesting that our original um the lady that started it all uh that started the story in 1991 brenda had given a description of an African-American male. Yeah. And then through this entire investigation, Russell Elwood was the primary suspect for a bunch of these murders, and he's an, a Caucasian male. But Gant is African-American. Gant is African-American. Okay. And he fit this, this um, serial killer... I'm, I'm sorry. He fit the sketch... That's right. ...profile. Yeah. So copycat? Um, okay, wow. so... Someone might be um, copycat. Yeah, but they weren't releasing any information, so I don't know if you can have a copycat if it's not wild, wild if it's not widely known. That's the thing. Oh yeah, so maybe go back to they knew each other. I don't know if there's a connection. Yeah. Well, I started to, to say that, but then it seemed far fetched that they would know each other. Well, I've got, yeah. but so maybe not if you I hung got, out in the red light district. Yeah, I've got a, I got a few more. Um, notes on that and questions about that so 
several other witnesses testified that they'd seen Elwood with Cheryl Lewis shortly before her disappearance. Um, unfortunately, the charges for the murder of Dolores Mack, the second body that was found, um, that was dropped due to evidence indicating that Elwood was actually not in town during her time of documented time of death. Hmm. So Elwood was found guilty of killing Cheryl Lewis and was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole on August 17th of 1999. So here, so that kind of concludes the story. So here are a couple of things that just kind of stick out to me, which we've kind of touched base on a little bit, but Elwood is still suspected of rough of roughly 15 of the killings. Um, that doesn't account for all of the victims. So, that goes back to is there multiple killers with similar methods was Gant's involvement involvement an isolated event he was only suspected of two of the murders and that was of his girlfriend and her friend who fit the alleged serial killer profile um did Gant and Elwood know each other from Gant's time as a police officer and Elwood being a repeat drug offender I mean did their paths cross um, and was Elwood's involvement, or was Elwood involved in that pimp criminal racketeering operation? Oh, damn. I mean, I kind of yeah. feel like that yeah. is a key piece it is, I I to the story. I do too. And the fact that Elwood was uh, went back to the scene of the crime to masturbate, that probably turned him on. Don't they say that's a thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yes. This, this is just so twists and turns. So, um, it is very twisty. Everybody, so when, when I talked to Christy about um, participating and started doing some research, I started asking pretty much everybody I know um, that lived in this area who was, you know, either born and raised or was living around here in the 90s, if they had ever heard of this story. And every single person said no. And mm -hmm, I mean, we're yeah. talking... One parish over is where a good percentage of the remains were found. So Tangipahoa and to St. John the Baptist Parish, all of that's like the western side of um, Lake Pontchartrain. That's pretty close to where we are right now. So I don't see why it wouldn't get news coverage. That happens local a lot. News coverage. That happens a lot. Um, it, that's crazy, you know. Yeah, I, so, you know, one of the things that I had talked to Christy about was did it not get the news coverage um, that you would expect because of their chosen profession, their social yeah. standings, I mean, the drug addiction history, right? family members not banging down the door to find out yeah. what happened to their their loved Which ones. They or they victims, could, right. it could be that the victims are not actually from New Orleans. They probably wound up in New Orleans and they were estranged from their families and their families didn't know where they were. It could be that too. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to the the target uh group of people and I think that because it's seemingly such, you know, little known story, I think it's absolutely worthwhile to talk about it and 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 I, honestly i feel like it's one of those um stories where it, it needs to be talked about more yeah it, yeah it reminds me of the jennings eight and you know yeah. that's another one that at, at the time did not get local publicity it wasn't until later when people had you know written about it and the documentary and you know and nobody was talking 
I'm mm. sure there are people that know, but there nobody was talking. It's the, uh, almost the same thing. Right. It's super familiar. Well, what was interesting in my research was that there was several different news stories, but they all had pieces. Mm-hmm. Like the, there wasn't yeah. really a full picture from beginning to end. Like I had to piece this together and I had to go back and I had to look at the dates and, um, you know, the Howard Stern call, which was kind of lumped into the Storyville Slayer, you know, does that, is that, are those 12 killings actually a part of this particular story? Is it two separate things? Like, it's it's interesting because nobody really, because there it wasn't investigated to me in the sense that we've been given all of this confirmed information. Like, Elwood is tied to yeah. this person, this person, this person. He was seen with this person. Like, he was only ever really truly tied to the person that he was convicted of murdering yeah so that's the sad part of it is that currently um all of the murders aside from cheryl lewis remain unsolved and he was never elwood still remains a suspect but he was no additional charges have ever been filed against him so um the task force to find the serial killer was disbanded in 1999 they stopped looking they yielded zero results so to me they left this elusive killer still on the loose. And here's my other question. Gant left. So killing stopped. Are there unsolved murders of African-American prostitutes in Georgia? And it's just not, the dots are not being connected. Nobody's, nobody's bothering to look for anything happening either in parallel or similar to, or, and, and I think that's why. I think when you're dealing with a less than savory group of people, I think, and, and, the, and, the, and they know that. It's they almost know like that, they're yeah. disposable and yeah. they're not going to be missed. Right. Well, also. Oh, it's so sad. Also, too, the news coverage could have been overshadowed and not picking the story up because that was during the time of Derek Todd Lee. Too, oh, even though that was in the Baton Rouge Lafayette area, yeah, um, that's because a good point. that was 1992 to 2003. That was happening in parallel, right? Oh, wow, and that was probably getting a lot of the the news coverage. Yep, you're I mean, exactly I remember right. it was, yeah. Which two? What what were the dates that you said night? It it stopped in 1999. No, it stopped in 1996. Well, technically, it stopped in 1995. They just found a set of skeletal remains in '96. Oh, okay. Well, that still overlaps with this DTL time frame because um, maybe they thought, well, if everybody's looking for this guy, I can go, you know, do what I'm doing down here. Right, in this, exactly. In the nobody's gonna be. Nobody's gonna care what I'm doing. Well, golly, that's this one's kind of. This one is. This is a good one. It is. It's a. Stumpy. Have y'all heard of breaking homicide? No. No. Anyone who's interested in this case should watch the Breaking Homicide episode on it. Okay. It may sway you in the direction that it was not Victor Gant who was the serial killer and murderer of his girlfriend at the time. Um, it says to look into Victor Gant's father, Sonny Gant. Oh, damn. He was the owner of a very famous steakhouse, which was also the front for prostitution, gambling, <laughs> and other things. Okay, I think that's story might have a second part to it 
Interesting. So the rumor is his girlfriend was killed because Victor's wife called Sonny to complain about Victor's infidelity. Okay. Are y'all ready for this one? Listen to this. This is about Donald Leroy Evans. And I knew I had heard of this guy's name, but I'd forgotten what the story was. So this is pretty crazy. Donald Leroy Evans was born in Watervliet, Michigan, July 5th, 1957. And in his own recount of his early history, he claimed he came from a big family of five brothers and three sisters, one of who died of cancer at six years old. He said he completed elementary school in Michigan, middle school in Ohio, and a year of high school in Brownsville, Texas. And he dropped out due to difficulty with teachers and other students. And he attempted suicide at 16 by ingesting roach poison and drugs. And he joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 18, or at 18, in San Antonio in 1975. And after boot camp, he was assigned to Camp Pendleton, California. Then he was transferred to the 3rd Marine Division based at Okinawa. And he assigned, he was assigned to perform maintenance duties, and he was put in a correctional custody platoon. And the spokesperson of the Public Affairs Office of the U.S. Marine Corps at the time couldn't tell from military personnel center information if he was a member of the platoon for disciplinary reasons or if he was a staff member assigned to handle prisoners. He was transferred to Philadelphia, where he was listed as a patient until he was discharged in 1976 due to mental problems. And from there, court records state that Evans received psychiatric care in Illinois and Michigan and veterans hospitals in 1978 and 1979. So he lived on and off in the Galveston, Texas area um, between 1984 and 1986. Um, He moved from there, Port Bolivar and Cameron, Louisiana. And then um, he first shows up on the record when he was arrested for um, stealing a bottle of wine. And that was in 1984. So he sexually assaulted a woman in Galveston in 1986, and he was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years, but he was paroled after only doing five. So I guess they were more lenient back then. I mean, what, was he released on good behavior? I, you know what? I didn't, I didn't come across that. Um, yeah, I don't like, oh, you're a you're, well-behaved uh, sexual assaulter. <laughs> good time, okay. If you if you are good, okay. So when they arrested him, he was using a different name, Jason Michael McGowan. Um, he lied about his age. He told him he was six years older. And in a letter to a Galveston State District judge, he wrote that he was not an idiot, that he had mental problems, and he asked for proper treatment in the veterans hospital. Um, and an actual doctor went on record and said that he shouldn't be out on the street because, quote, he would hurt somebody. But if you have to tell somebody <laughs> you're not an idiot. Yeah, you know, at, at that point, when I first started reading, I was like, oh, this guy was crying out for help. He was trying to tell somebody. But, you know, as this story unfolds, it definitely changed my mind. So he had just a little foreshadowing there, I'm sure, because, you know, the topic is Southern serial killers. Right. <laughs> Spoiler alert. After all what we're talking about. 
Spoiler alert. So he got a job in a motel in Galveston by lying on his application. He said he graduated from Brownsville High School where he studied business and accounting, English composition, and he took design and drafting at Athens, Texas. Um, he also listed research and theology and church history as an area of special study. So he he was just all over the place. So he worked there until a, the parole officer pressured the motel to fire him. And in July 26th of 1986, he stole a car. He left Galveston and he drove to Mississippi. So he, he, he served his neighbors fresh fish dinners like he was buttering them up. There's a so fresh fish dinner. I thought that was pretty funny I when I read that. You were gonna say. Fresh, <laughs> fresh fish. That's not where my brain went. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah. So he he told him that he was an ex convict trying to turn his life around, and he was going to church, and he did charity work. So. He would say things like he was attending Chicago's DePaul University while he was in prison. So, and then people later would come forward and say that he was what a good con man he was. That <laughs> was pretty funny. Like, okay, so he told people he was helping raise money to build a new school at a Lutheran church. This guy right here. He took Joseph Whitted's car and he used his identity when he left Galveston. And he pawned his girlfriend at the time. He pawned her jewelry. And he, he got about $150 for that. He took that with him down, um, down to Mississippi. So along the way, he was cashing checks. Um, get this. Okay, so the car that he stole um, with his car, he, well, actually, he asked, he gave him a sob story. He's like, hey, you know, I'm this great ex-con, and I'm doing all this charity work, but I don't have a car, so can I borrow your car? And and so they let him. He ends up not bringing it back. He so he takes it. Charity work. I need charity. <laughs> right. I need so I need a car to do my charity work in. I guess. So uh, this is pretty funny because what luck this guy. So he found a checks from a closed account from um, the witted who owned the car, and in a briefcase he also found witted's birth certificate so he was able to get a driver's license and this joseph Wooden's name he has a car he's got a driver's license he's got a birth certificate and you know you could do that back in 1986 stolen identity absolutely so and then he i'm not sure how he if he made the resumes or maybe they were already um they were already made but he was passing out resumes and telling them hey i'm joseph witted so, right so he's trying to get a job out of this thing too. <laughs> some creativity in that there is he fell into that though how lucky was that so like ass backwards fell into another identity right <laughs> just for taking this car so like, imagine like the like when he opened it it was like Holy shit! Like, like I'm this guy now. That's so funny. Anyway, that was hilarious. Um, they said that he could sell his grandmother a pair of ten thousand dollars tennis shoes. That's how good of a con man he was. That's kind of a strange saying, but okay. 
Never heard that before. Like, what grandmother's buying tin that? Oh, because they're frugal. Right. Right. It It took me a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. On July 28, 1991, Tammy Giles and her two children, Beatrice and Melissa, along with Sherry Lynn Vincent and her two children and Vincent's mother and sister, they began their journey to Mississippi. Um, to the Gulf Coast, um, they were looking for employment and housing. Okay, this is quite a few people. This is one mother with two children, and then you have another mother with her two children, and then her mother and sister. They were all in this van traveling to Mississippi. So on August 1st, the group parks the van in Jones Park in Gulfport to allow the children to play. Approximately 2 o'clock that afternoon, Tammy Giles sent Beatrice to obtain cigarettes from a man who was making a telephone call at a harbor shop. And that's when she runs into Texas parole violator Donald Leroy Evans. Mm-hmm. He gave Beatrice a pack of cigarettes and her mother. and um, That was for her mother. And then so she goes back to the van and he follows her. When he gets there, you know, he's met with this this whole group of people. And so he, you know, he tries to be friendly with them. And he told, of course, he's still telling his lies. He told him that he was a former Navy SEAL who taught school in Texas. So um, after a while, you know, they're visiting and getting to know each other. Evans offers to purchase groceries and requested that Beatrice accompany him to the store. Now, at the time, she was 10 years old. And her mother gave her permission, let her go with him. And then they went 20 miles. um, Well, I'll say 20 miles. They were gone 20 minutes. And they come back with bottled water, orange orange juice, and some uh, ice. And so this is is where it gets weird. But Uh, not weird, but kind of crazy. He he took a 10-year-old to the grocery store? Yes. For us, this stranger a that complete comes, complete stranger. Yep, yeah. So it, mm-hmm. that will um get into that a little later. <laughs> why that? Why that's like that's not right. Um, Evans and and uh, Beatrice they left the park for a second time, and then they right. traveled to a nearby convenience store to purchase diapers and snacks. Why didn't they get that when they went? To the <laughs> right, right, exactly. So we got to go back to the store, but I have to take your ten-year-old again. Like I know you don't know me, oh, but sure. So disgusting, man. Yeah. After returning to the the park for the second time, he suggested we have a barbecue. Now at this time, he's like, "Hey, let's have a barbecue." <laughs> this is just this. It's weird. Look, so I've had enough orange juice and water. <laughs> I need to eat. Right, and then we went back for diapers and snacks. Now let's have a barbecue. Okay, why didn't you get the barbecue? When you, anyway, if we so, went yeah. to the grocery store. So we got to go back okay. again. Yeah. So again, he requested that Beatrice accompany him to the store to purchase groceries. This time for the barbecue. Now this is the f- uh, third time. Okay, Evans. Uh, she he told Beatrice's mom that um the trip will take approximately an hour because he needs to call a friend who would um he would help them find an apartment. Like I know this is I need like some barbecue and a place to live. 
I got called my friend place. This time it's going to take an hour. Like, I know it took 20 minutes. We left and came back. We left again, came back. Now we're going to go back. And this time it's going to take an hour because I have to get doing barbecue doing groceries. Time. I'm so what scared are they to ask. doing letting this 10-year-old? <laughs> right. right. I'm, I'm like in shock. <laughs> the third time. Strange man. <laughs> Very, okay, remind, but but she also was like, "Hey, go get me." Which I guess the cigarette parts aren't weird. They did did that back in the day. So <laughs> I don't know. So um, prior to leaving the park for the third time, Beatrice asked Sherry Lynn Vincent. Now this is the other. This is the mother. You know, there was Beatrice and Melissa's mother, and then there was another mother. So she asked her to come along because. She didn't feel like riding with Evans. I guess not. Like uh, for a third time, like <laughs> Jesus. Even she was like, "Nah, this is weird." So Evans, however, refused to allow Vincent to ride along. And then, like, okay, so no, uh, he refuses to let this grown woman, this other mother, ride along with them, and they don't think that's weird. Anyway, so Vincent is the, like I said, that was the second mother. She told Beatrice's mother about Beatrice's apprehension of going. And her mother allowed her to leave with him anyway. Yeah, so Evans and Beatrice leave the park again. This is 7 p.m. by this time, okay? So... Contrary to his representations to Beatrice's mother, he did not go to the store. Imagine that. Like, really? Oh, like, yeah. So, that was not his intention. Right. Did after the, third the other trips were like time. him building up. Yes. I think that was him getting to the store. Yes. Mm -hmm. like he was testing the battling waters. himself. I think maybe? so. Yeah, I think a so. Bit of both, maybe. And trying to get, like, building some trust trust and then there, there's there's a lot that that was left out but that's just weird right because what what's the what are they doing in between before they're like right. oh we got to go back to this we gotta go to the store oh we gotta go back to the store <laughs> what's all this going back to anyway so they they went continued on highway 90 and they uh to pass christian they eventually arrived in covington louisiana oh geez in his confession to the police, Evans stated that Beatrice became worried when they didn't stop for groceries. However, Evans stated that he uh, deluded her into thinking and believing that they were just taking a longer route. And prior to reaching Louisiana, Evans stopped near Bay St. Louis and purchased ice cream for Beatrice, and he also purchased duct tape. Mm. So Evans traveled to St. Tammany Parish, where he eventually stopped in a secluded wooded area and Evans remained in the Jeep. This is the car that, that he stole from the neighbors and he remained in, in the Jeep with Beatrice and he ordered her to take off her clothes. Although she was crying and he begged him not to, um, and begged him to take her back to her mother. Um, she asked to be taken to the bathroom because she, she said she needed to go to the bathroom and um, she couldn't control it, but she ended up defecating in the vehicle, and um, he cleaned her with towels, and he wrapped her with duct tape around her head and her mouth several times and removed her clothing. 
and he sexually assaulted her vaginally and anally and strangled her to death with a white cotton rope. So, after that, he traveled back to Mississippi with her body concealed in the back seat, and he later dumped her body in the wooded area in Pearl River County, and then he just uh, threw the clothes out nearby. Um, he attempted to disguise the, the stolen, it was a Suzuki Samurai Jeep, and he, he, they say he attempted to disguise it, but he just took the top off. Uh, um, and then he traveled across Mississippi and Louisiana for four days, cashing checks at small country stores um, just to survive. So when he didn't return, um, this was an hour later, Sh- Sherry Lynn Vincent, so this is the her mother's friend. Yeah. She contacted the Gulfport Police Department, not her mother. So um, she described Evans, um, Beatrice, and the Jeep and with you know what he was driving and she had actually memorized the license plate which i thought was maybe she had had her radar up maybe think she's like something's weird i mean i guess so after several like, trips yeah. with a 10 year old i mean and she didn't want to go paying closer attention to good right. for, her for remembering yeah and yeah, she didn't stop him right, right. Before the third trip, I, I know, I know. Can you remember? Can you imagine? Especially late. since the ten-year-old was voicing her, her concerns. Yeah. Yes, and it said that's why she memorized the the jeep because she did feel uncomfortable when she was uh, leaving the park. So I'm wondering how comfortable she felt with her friendship that she did not open her mouth and say something to the mother. Right, that's like we're still missing some things. Like, were they drinking heavily? Like, I don't know. Like, I was yeah. gonna ask. Like, I feel like there was maybe some substance abuse or sure. something going on. I have to be. To no be. one was really thinking with the right of mind. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, the detectives with the Gulfport Police Department they met up with Tammy Giles, that's Beatrice's mom, at Jones Park, and after they took the information about the Jeep. Um, that's when they discovered that it belonged to Joseph Whitted and that Donald Leroy Evans was the one who was driving it. So on the following day, an affidavit was signed and a warrant was issued for kidnapping. And after receiving information that Evans might be traveling to either Louisiana or Florida, detectives contacted the FBI. And a phone monitoring device was placed on a telephone of Gail Stewart Evans. This is the girlfriend um, in, back in Galveston that he pawned her jewelry and left yeah. and when he stole the car and went to Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so she she helped the FBI to, to locate him. So um, they were able to trace him through checks that he was cashing. And he was tracked by law. And on August... 5th, 1991, he was arrested by a sheriff's deputy from Tangibahoe Parish. Oh, right. And they, all the connections here, uh, Louisiana, on federal kidnapping charges. So this, so they just got him on federal kidnapping charges because at this time, Beatrice Nobody. is... Right. Beatrice is missing and they, they weren't even... They didn't even know that she had been murdered at the time. So... Um, on August 8th, 1991, he was given an initial appearance before a, a U.S. magistrate judge uh, in Biloxi. And he re- was represented by counsel, and he later confessed to the kidnapping and murder of Beatrice. So that's how they found out he con- uh, he confessed. And at the time of his confessions, he had only been arrested on federal kidnapping charges. And 
um, he he was um, he had not been arrested on state kidnapping charges, just the federal ones. And then arrest warrant for capital murder was not issued until August 20th, 1991. And then he was arrested for capital murder on August 20th, 1991. And this was um, Harrison County, uh, Mississippi, at that jail. So he was um, interviewed and they concluded that he was of normal intelligence and competent to assist counsel and to stand trial. So he also, um, this, this um, psychiatrist, he testified that Evans was very manipulative and he was, he was aware of person, place, time, and situation and had an excellent memory. So that's just keep that in mind. So he did say that he suffered from mixed personality disorder and with paranoid and grandiose features. And he's um, this particular psychiatrist described individuals with such disorder as intact with reality and they are aware of what they're doing. So he was keen, shrewd, manipulative, cunning, and commonly known as a con artist. We could have figured the perfect recipe, right? So, um so, okay, so at this point, this is his account. He said he led them to believe that he was going to the store to pick up some barbecue items. That's pretty funny. Okay, so you know you're from Michigan when you call them barbecue items. <laughs> Nobody says barbecue items. That should have been their first clue. They should have been like, no. Something's no, not right here. <laughs> Nobody says that. No, we're not going to have barbecue items. Um <laughs> Where they could barbecue on the beach. See, also, yeah, we're not not barbecuing either. Come on, that's when you have meat with some sauce on it, okay? You're going to be grilling. Let's just get that out of the way. Right. (laughs) Um, He said that he had to stop and um, make some phone calls and then get them situated in an apartment, and he was going to get them some gas money because they were out of gas like i don't know how he didn't run out of gas he kept going back and forth to the store and (laughs) 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 and then he's just rambling when he's he says i went to the store and i went under the when i left them feeling that i had the intention to go to the store and buy some other stuff and do some other errands so he's very vague. So that was that was his own account. <laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely crazy. a missing link yeah. here somewhere. Yes, and this this part's sad. So he he told investigators that Beatrice kept on asking, "Where are you going? Where are you going?" And he told her that he was going to buy her some T-shirts and stuff. And he stopped at the store and he bought her an ice cream. And that's when he bought duct tape. So that's how they knew that. And then um, he was en route on, uh, to I-10. And Beatrice was concerned when they were going. And she kept asking, where are we going? And he told her, um, tricked her into believing that they were going. That they were still going to the store. But that it was going to take longer. 
I mean, how long are you in the car for? I mean, like, I know. That's got to be over an hour, right? Yeah, so it's at least 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, from I she's only 10, so she, but she the can, concept of, of going to the store. Start to finish. She, I think she can tell it's taken longer than he said it would. Poor ba- Oh, my God. Well, yeah, because, you know, she had already been on two trips prior, too. And these were just, like, 20-minute, like, run to the store and come back and leaving and coming back but anyway anyway on august 5th 1991 donald leroy evans was arrested in tangibaho parish louisiana for the kidnapping of 10 year old beatrice louise roth and he was subsequently transferred to mississippi where he convinced to murdering beatrice and on october 15th 1991 he was indicted for capital murder with the underlying felony of kidnapping and two counts of sexual battery so the investigation revealed that her mother, Tammy Gilesroth, was charged with being an accessory to sexual battery. So this is where, like, you're like, this is weird. Why do you? Was she in on yeah, it? she knew, and so she, she, you know, they investigators had enough evidence that they believed that she knew what his intentions were when he yeah, took her. Did they have a that. conversation about it? What, did he pull her aside and say, hey, I'm going to take your 10-year-old? And she's right. Like, okay, sure. And fun. Yeah, I mean. How, how, well, how, I mean, if you're willing to let her go with some, maybe he promised something in return if you let me take, you know, your kid and do Thing, yes, you know, I can. I'll give you the. I'll set you up in a place to live. And that's right. Desperation. Yeah. If you allow that, though, I mean, that's right because the investigation revealed that the mother permitted her yeah. child to go with Evans, with the full knowledge the sexual activity was to take place between him and the child. And then there's also the. I have to believe, although I didn't read this, but I had to. I have to believe that when they conducted their investigation, that they also spoke to Vincent, uh, who was the one who was aware. She memorized the license plate, and she knew something was yeah. I mean, was she off. Obviously, had to be aware of something, right? Because I, I can't imagine they would just take um, uh, uh, Evans's word for it. You know, they would, uh, he probably just promised, like you know, food, shelter, the right. basics money for money yeah a subsistence you know or yeah just something in return so yeah um so beatrice's mother tammy goss was arrested and she was looking at a maximum of 30 year sentence if she was convicted and this was in 1985 so she pled guilty she would, um, oh, she also pled guilty. This is subsequent to that, but well, not subsequent. This is before that, to abusing her 15 month old son and gave up custody of the boy. That was what was in 1985 because at this time, this was um, 1991. So in 1985, she had a 15 year old, a 15 month old that she uh, abused. Yes. So, you know, upstanding, outstanding mother here is yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. What are the yeah. odds that these two complete strangers with such history end up in the same place at the same time? Right. I know. And I didn't even know that's that was the part of the story that you were going to cover. That's crazy. So while Evans was in Harris County Jail in June 1993, he escaped. and But he was recaptured about a mile away. So he wasn't real good at it. 
<laughs> there were three other prisoners um, with him on, when he escaped. And one of them pulled a homemade knife on a guard. And then they were found in a, um, at a local lumber yard about a half a mile. Well, this one says a half a mile away from the county jail. And then um, witnesses say that he was wearing a stained yellow rain coat and visibly tired and handcuffed. And then uh, that's when they caught him. And then the uh, vehicle, they returned that to the, the uh, Harris County Jail. So when he was in jail, he ends up confessing to more to killing more than 60 women nationwide. So not just um, Beatrice, of course, but 60 other women. And then, in, yes, 60, 60, 60 right? yes, yes. Oh yes. So in July of 1995, he, he pleaded, uh, it says Evans pleaded guilty in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for the 1985 killing of Ira Jean Smith. And for that, he received a life sentence. Um, and this was in... Um, Daytona, so the police detective in Daytona, his name was Walker, he reopened a homicide investigation and said that Donald Leroy Evans, who was on Mississippi's death row at the time, killed Janet Movic. So all these other places, they're looking into these unsolved murders and these cold cases. And that particular one, they, they were like, okay, we believe that he killed her. What year was that in Daytona? In Daytona, that was 1995. That was in July. No, I'm sorry. That's when he pleaded guilty. That's when he that's when he pled guilty. So 1985 is when it happened. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yes. And so wasn't quite old enough to be using Daytona as my stomping ground. Oh, oh, right. (laughs) So she was um, a Pennsylvania woman. And um, her nude body was found in a wooded lot off US-1. This was April 14th, 1985. And she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. So that was the same, the MO there. Um, And so he, Detective Walker, he found that he named details about the murder. Evans named details about the murder that he couldn't have known otherwise. And... It is interesting to note that Mississippi investigators said that Evans had lied about committing other murders, um, but he was never convicted of her murder. Like, they they thought he was suspect number one, but they never convicted him for that. And there are 12 other cases in which he was strongly suspected for, but he was never tried. Um, his other confessed killings remain unproven and... Therefore, most of the party had not been investigated. And after that, he was on a local talk radio show in Florida. And he de- this is crazy because he declared himself as a white supremacist. He shaved his head. He declared, his, co- declared himself as a white supremacist. And he spent two weeks on this show discussing the pleasures of how he murdered uh, a black sex worker in Florida. And then later, he says those were a hoax. Oh. Like, well, no, I didn't. It's a thing <laughs> where they confess and then they walk it back. <laughs> He's like, no, like, I was know. kidding. Unless he wanted, like, oh. <laughs> what? You were kidding? 
Right. Unless he wanted <laughs> attention, I'm sure that's what that yeah. was all about. He's like, what, yeah. what else am I going to do? I'm in jail, a prison, actually. So then he told authorities that if he didn't get direct access to the press, that he would stop talking about the 60 murders. Yeah, so total manipulator here. Total manipulation. I just feel like I've gone through like 15 different people (laughs) for one person. Like (laughs) many different lives of this one person. So, okay. He, he when he was in court, he did a lot of his own defending. He defended himself. And now he's a lawyer. Exactly. (laughs) So he put... He petitioned the court to refer to him not as Donald Leroy Evans during his, the proceedings, but as Hi Hitler, H I Hitler, <laughs> because he was too dumb to realize that Hitler's following followers didn't call him Hi Hitler; they called him Heil Hitler. <laughs> but he's not an idiot, right? Remember? But right, remember he's not an idiot. He just has mental problems. So, and on January 5th, 1999, Evans was shanked at the Mississippi State Penitentiary apartment while being led back to his cell after a shower by inmate Jimmy Mack. Jimmy Mack shanked him. There you go. That is the story of Donald Leroy Evans. Golly. That's crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. What is so crazy to me is that he had been what killing for a decade or more and then comes here to this area in mississippi murder commits the murder in the parish where i live right arrested one parish back over to the west right yeah. And then there's a crazy, um, which is Tanchbaho, where Kristen referenced, um, yeah, that particular, well, I don't know which killer it was, but that's right. one of their bodies there. And then there's the crossover to Daytona, which is where, um, ironically, I'll be discussing um, a Southern serial killer. So is this like a triangle a highway of serial killing? It feels like it. It feels like the triangle all like interwoven. Yeah. And we didn't words. even plan it that way. That's crazy. No, no, we no, didn't. No. I did. I wanted to, I don't want to, that was a beautiful segue, but I don't want to, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to bring it back for just a second. Um, how do you go from, trying to commit suicide at 16 to being accepted into the Marines. I think oh. back then, and our producer is probably the subject matter expert here, but I think back then it was really loose. Like you can, you, or not well, really loose. It oh, like the standards were lower? Probably. Yeah. Well, and he was a do. juvenile, so would not have been on his adult record. Oh, good yeah. point. Oh, fair yeah. enough. He's okay. look. That stuck out to me, and, and I even wrote it down on my little note. I was like, "Man, I, I, I didn't want to interrupt earlier. I just wanted to ask that question." Because I've heard of that. It's a good question because I've heard of that happening a lot. You know, like what? Not the, now, obviously, but you know, mental um, problems. Decades past. 
what do you mean mental problems and then you go into the military and they don't it doesn't show up you had to complete a psychiatric evaluation to get into any branch of the military no you don't no he's shaking his head no (laughs) i guess maybe i just assumed that i don't know if i i mean i think if you show like I'm surprised he did not show signs and symptoms. Well, well, it did show, but it did. He got kicked out, or oh, that's right, right, because of mental problems. Right, so right. it so catches up with you, right? So I'm thinking, like, it's not the right term is not probable cause, but it's probably suspicion of. He got a section eight. Is um housing? No, no. <laughs> So a military term, um, Section 8 deals with mental problems. So what's really interesting is that so far, um, your two Southern serial killers are not actually from the South and their respective killing grounds. And it's the same for mine as well. So I'll just go ahead and say, like, you know, in the interest of transparency, um, the one that I chose is, um, well known and, you know, it's, it's been something that's been a a bit of a media sensation. So, um, the story's been told before, but it, I chose Eileen Warnos. Um, hope I'm saying that right. I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. At any rate, um, she was branded the damsel of death and the highway hooker. Um, she is accused of, actually not only accused, accused and convicted um, of killing seven men between 1989 and 1990 while she worked in the sex trade along I-75 in Florida. Um Eileen Warnos was actually born in Troy, Michigan, and um, she lived in Rochester, Michigan. Um, her mother um, abandoned her at a very young age, and her father was um, a violent um, alcoholic and addict. Uh, so when she and her brother were very young, they actually went to live with um, their grandparents because her father died by suicide in prison, serving time for sodomizing a child. So oh, the God. grandmother and grandfather that they went to live with also had deep-seated issues. Grandmother was a raging alcoholic and grandfather was violent as well. Um, so in her early teens, she, well, I say early teens, not super early teens, 16 I believe um, she got pregnant and they sent her to live in a home for unwed mothers. Um, She ultimately gave her uh, son up for adoption and she dropped out of school and began uh, what would become a life in the sex trade. Um, At one point, she was even like kicked out of her house and had to live in the woods for a period of time. She had nowhere to go. And then um, backing up to around age of 14 is when she began to trade sex for cigarettes. And she was known as the cigarette pig um, amongst, um, yeah, amongst, uh, I guess it would have been like neighborhood or school, group of school guys, whatever. So 
Um, she, as a young adult, lived as a transient and a sex worker along I-75, um, of course, and then the time frame, as I said, was between 1989 and 90 that she shot and killed seven men. Um, she and her girlfriend, Tyria Moore, pretended to be, like, in distress or need help on the side of the interstate, and that's how they would lure mostly uh, older white or middle-aged white men with nice cars. Um, and it's been said that Tyria was probably her most stable relationship that she ever had um, with, with this girlfriend. So... They actually lived um, in Daytona Beach in the Fairview Motel, um, and their favorite bar was called The Last Resort. It was a biker bar, and ironically is where, have you been there? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have. I've been there. Why did you say that? I saw your face, and I know that you've been to Bike Week, so I was like, when That's I said the last resort, your face said it all. <laughs> we were, yep, we were watching a documentary, and they showed it. I was like, oh my God, I've been there. It's a dive, y'all. It's a well, dive. Well, it's also, well, it's also, it is a dive, but it's also, I guess you would say famous. It, yes. Because it, of Bike Week, and everybody wants to go yep. and see the last resort, but it is. It's basically True. just... A hole in the wall. It's nothing to write home about. It it is. It is famous too for I don't know what. It's I, I don't either because it, there's nothing to it like you said, but it, it ironically that's uh where she was arrested um in 1991. Um there was uh suspected by police that the murders were committed by a woman because when they would um, find these victims like off of these Florida interstate exits, their vehicles would have the driver's seat uh, pulled all the way up uh, as close to the dashboard as possible. So like they that they started to see a pattern there where, okay, I think we're dealing with a woman. Is that is our producer? Um, no, that would be me because I, like, I drive <laughs> like this. Like, like, anyways, I do too. I'm like on the dashboard, but that's that's why they started to suspect that uh, it, it was a woman, and um, it was the same uh, weapon used in each of the killings. It was a 22 caliber um, pistol, and it would actually be found um, later in a lagoon in Daytona Beach. Um, so, um, she and Tyria had actually been identified as driving one of the victim's car vehicles, and there was a sketch drawn up of, of the two of them, and um, Eileen is taller and blonde, and Tyria's shorter and stockier, let's say. I don't like that description, but that's what the media described her as. Um, so... Um, after she was arrested for the seven murders, um, Tyria actually was the one who turned on her. Um, she had actually fled, or I guess she was involved in the, in the shootings, but she fled and went back to Ohio. Um, uh, that's when she turned on, um, Eileen and testified against her 
actually what she did was she was working with police and um, they, uh, what's it called? Um, I don't want to say bugged. Like they, they taped her talking to Eileen on a um, call from jail and she basically told her, she's like, listen, she's like, yeah. you know, everybody's coming after me. She's like, you know, they're coming after my family. She's like, you need to go ahead and confess. And so Eileen actually did that very same day or night, whichever it was, uh, called the uh, warden and said she wanted to confess. So um, she confessed and she uh, was arrested and charged with the murders, uh, which is typically what happens and um <laughs> she had hired a lawyer named steven glasser this is a very very odd fellow um if you don't believe me like just google him and watch his commercials from the 90s because he's a very odd fellow well <laughs> odd fellow so um there was this couple called the Prollies. Okay, it was Arlene. I think the husband's name is Robert. So they read in the newspaper one day about Eileen's story, and um, they said that what they did was is they prayed about it for two and a half weeks, and then they decided to reach out to her because. In a letter, she wrote to Eileen. She's like, Jesus told me to write to you. And um, what they did was they ultimately wrote letters and letters and letters, talked on the phone all the time. And then what they did was they convinced her to plead no contest and just pray for forgiveness, which mm -hmm. no contest is basically not guilty, essentially, mm -hmm. from what I understand. I'm not a... Oh, lawyer. no. I'm not a... It's not... No. no contest is not the same as a no guilty plea you're not con saying you're guilty you're not saying you're innocent um it's just like nothing okay right. so maybe some people just compare it to not guilty and not guilty means you walk out of court what no you didn't right. do it you don't have to go to trial not no contest means you're 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 not going to go to trial and say guilty or not guilty you just take in whatever they give you really okay. yes okay. without having sense. to admit guilt oh okay okay that makes sense well what they wanted her to do was not admit that she was guilty plead no contest and pray for forgiveness and that would be her um absolution or, or whatever so they developed a friendship with her through like daily phone calls and through constantly sending letters and they actually asked if they could adopt her. Um, and keep in mind, Eileen is now 35 years of age. Um, and this is right before she goes uh, to before her first trial. Um, and they said that this was done out of a religious and spiritual desire. It was out of Christian love that they just wanted... Um, a family and that they wanted to adopt this woman to be their child. And mm -hmm. there were all these plans for Eileen to go. They, they actually, so I didn't mention this, but they have a horse farm and they also raise mm -hmm. wolves. And she, mm -hmm. her plan was to go and live on the farm with the prollies. <laughs> well, 
Um, so she's charged with one murder and gets uh, the death sentence uh, for the first murder. And she testified that that was in self-defense, um, that he had raped her. Then she's charged with three additional murders um, and gets three additional death sentences. And um, she is seen in video actually um, like yelling at the judge and, and looks in the camera and says, wife and kids get raped right in the ass and she was like yelling motherfuckers and flipping <laughs> them off and um so she's in a maximum security prison in the everglades in a six by eight um cell on death row and she starts to become really depressed and angry with the prolies i hope i'm saying that right too or it doesn't matter because they're they're terrible. Arlene um, probably had written her a very strongly worded letter after she flipped the judge off and um, said that uh, she had been offered $25,000 or up to $25,000 for an interview with a documentarian. Uh, but she would, Eileen refused to do it because um, she was basically like punishing the Prawleys, like because they stood. To profit off of it because she was now their daughter. Mm-hmm. So it was basically like a big F you um, to the prolates. And she's like, you know, I'm not giving the interview and you're not getting any money. Yeah. And I don't care if I get any money because I'm on death row. So what yeah. am I going to do with it? Buy razors and mascara? I don't know. Tampons. So- <laughs> <laughs> not um, tampons. Pads are free. <sighs> You have to buy tampons. Yes. I mean, she could barter with cigarettes. Oh this is God. true. Yeah. What is that called? That's a, there's a word for that where you use, um, that's like your currency. Anyway, I don't know. I'm making stuff up. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, eventually the documentarian is like, okay, well, can we renegotiate for $10,000? And then that will be divided amongst the prollies, the, um, odd fellow attorney, Stephen Glasser. And then the remaining would go to Lee or that's what Eileen went by was Lee was her nickname. Well, so essentially they would each get 2,500, the prollies. He, um, she would get a thousand, and then the attorney would get uh, the remainder. So, so they came back and dropped the price. They came to back and try dro- and get her to do the <laughs> documentary. Yeah, because he really <laughs> wanted to dig into the dynamic with the prollies because it was so, like, I guess I don't know what word to use. Maybe intriguing. I don't know. Just wanting to delve into. Okay, how did we get here? Yeah. You know? Why did they involve themselves? In this, yeah, so it's intriguing. I just don't understand how you would turn down 25 grand but accept 10 grand. Like, wouldn't you think it would go the opposite direction? Like, you would want to offer more money to get as an incentive? Well, so that's a good (laughs) question and a good point because, um, you know, while she's been convicted and sentenced to multiple death sentences, um, she's set to be the first woman to be executed. I don't know if she's the first woman 
to be executed by electrocution or the first woman ever to be executed in Florida. It's one of the two. Um, so, as you can imagine, this creates quite a splash with the media. And then, of course, the book deals and the movie deals are pouring in. Like, everybody wants to know her story. And they also want a piece of the pie. Um, but she's still got two additional uh, trials coming up where she's got to, you know, go face the judge for the remaining three murders because so far she's only been convicted and sentenced for four. There's three remaining. So, um, when the book and movie deals start to pour in, it's, um, allegedly there's a deputy and another, um, law enforcement official who are, um, suspected of being in talks with movie producers and or book uh, and or authors of a book and there is discussion allegedly about the exchange for money you know for their stories so I'll I will come back to that but um, you know the fact that she targeted middle-aged white men as her victims um it was often said that she was you know killing her father over and over and over again for the trauma that he caused her but um so as it turns out um after they made the after they renegotiated for the lesser amount of money for the documentary the documentarian goes back to the Prollies and he's like, hey, you know, we had a scheduled time to talk. And then Arlene Prolly is like, no, I didn't receive any money. So I'm not talking to you and you need to leave my property. Which he knows full well that he paid the money to the attorney. But she's saying, no, I didn't receive it. So you need to leave. Well, anyway, um, it, it when they do end up interviewing Eileen or Lee, she said that she believes that the Prolly's motive was to make money off of her and that because they convinced her to change her pleas to no contest, um, that is how she wound up with the multiple death sentences. They also, and this is Lee's, like this came straight from Lee. She said they suggested ways for her to kill herself while she was in jail. Um, they told her that if she pled no contest, that she could avoid trial and police wouldn't have any movie deals and nobody could profit off of her. All the while, obviously, they're profiting off of her. She's very unlucky with her parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, there's so many questions about the adoption at 35. But, yeah. um, so... While she's on death row, um, and after all of the um, shenanigans with the documentary, which she she was paid for, and, and she gave her interview the, the first time they went. They did go back for a second interview, and then the jail um, told them that they had violated some kind of policy and told them they couldn't come back, so they couldn't finish it. It wasn't because she didn't want to give the rest of the interview. It was because... They had supposedly parked too close to a gate or something or a fence line. And they were warned about it the first time they were there 
to, to do the interview, but then when they came back, they were like, oh no, the last time you were here, you violated whatever, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so, in the aftermath, it was learned that while she was awaiting trial for the remaining victims, the, the remaining three, that her first victim had spent 10 years in an institution um, because uh, he was being treated for attempted rape. Um, it was also discovered that the same police that had been in conversations about exchanging her story for money in a movie deal. So this came to light because it was a recorded uh, conversation between the deputy and I believe it was a, I believe it was a superintendent. I may be wrong about that, but um, it, when it came to light and the recorded conversation came out, the police resigned. And so, um, it was believed that uh, if, if, if discovery was made that police did accept money um, in exchange for her story, then all of her death sentences could be overturned. But because Goofy Lawyer was not answering anybody's phone calls, and, I mean, even the documentarian had made multiple phone calls to the sheriff's department and to speak to the sheriff and then had also made phone calls to the superintendent and repeatedly left messages and was continually given excuses. Um, that sort of more or less uh, died on the vine. Any hope of um, having those overturned and happening in parallel, um, she had... Uh, an appeals attorney who was working towards a stay of execution, but she actually fired um, the attorney that was, or attorneys that were working on um, the stay of execution. And in 2002, uh, Florida Governor Jeb Bush lifted the temporary stay of execution. Three psychiatrists had deemed her mentally competent to understand the death penalty and the reasons why it was being implemented. And she was ultimately um, executed on the morning of October 9th, 2002. And her reported last words were, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th. Like the movie, Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. Okay. So, What's that mean? I, I don't know. I don't know that anyone knows. Um, her ashes were scattered by a tree in her hometown, but I don't know by whom. Um, obviously, her story has been profiled in TV, film, movies, the documentary by the British documentarian Nick Brunfield. Um, There's actually two installments of a documentary. They're very... Um, interesting for anyone who is interested in um, obviously doing a deeper dive. Um, and then, of course, Charlize Theron, um, she played Eileen uh, in the 2003 film Monster. Um, Christina Ricci was uh, her co-star, and her name was Selby Wall in the movie, but it was actually... 
the character was actually based on Tyria Moore. So, what is the percentage of female serial killers? It's very low. I don't know exactly. That's a good question. Um, we need to... Are you looking it up? <laughs> it's very low. And I think that was truly the only reason that they suspected a female was simply because of the placement of the driver's seat in the vehicles. I think it's interesting that the speculation was is that she was killing her father. Like yeah. That was what her target was. And that was her trauma. And that's how she dealt with it. And she even said, I mean, like, there's so much to it. Like, I obviously just gave, like, a 30,000 feet overview from the viewpoint of the documentarian. Because I think it should be said that most of everything that I discussed came from the documentary. Um, not all of it, but most of it did. Um, it, it, you yeah. know, it, she, she, there's no denying that she had a brutal and traumatic um childhood teenage life young adult I, I mean obviously there was a lot that that I didn't cover but do they know anything of her <laughs> son that she put up for mm -hmm. adoption I don't think so it was actually said that so she did have the one brother and it was actually said that she also had a brief uh, intimate relationship with him when they were young. Yeah. I know. So tragic. women account for just over 11% of all serial murder cases in the past century. So it's uh, this wow. says 11% for, per, you know, 100 years. Yeah, it's super small. And she, you know, she acknowledged the fact that she was labeled a serial killer, but, you know, one of the things I neglected to mention was, you know, she stood by, till the very end, she stood by the fact that it was self-defense and she did not know, you know, why she felt compelled to shoot them, but she said it was self-defense because Each. two rape, two of the seven victims raped her and five of them. Self-defense over Each. and over again? Each time. Maybe so one, maybe two, not all I mean, of them. Was she, was she in a situation where she was being triggered? These guys were hitting on her and Probably. trying to have a relationship with her, and she interpreted and she interpreted it incorrectly. And well, I think that's plausible. Like, did she lure them in a situation? Then she was triggered and then felt like she needed to defend herself. And that's why in her mind, she was defending herself. Well, I think that that's a good point because, um, she even said that, uh, you know, when they would pretend that they were in distress and lure them off the interstate, you know, she did all that. She says she did it all for Tyria because she was trying to make more yeah. money yeah. as a sex worker. Mm -hmm. But then whenever they actually, commenced to the act I think you're right I think she was triggered and she could not control it uh, um, I'm yeah. not saying it's okay or right or justified I'm just saying I think that that's 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 what happened yeah no 
Yeah, I think so. That's what happened. I, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, what could, she could have just said all that. But then also that could have been a trigger. And then towards the end, you know, another thing that was in- interesting to me was after she had been sentenced or given three death sentences or four death sentences actually and they were it was an election year and they were bringing her back up on trial for the remaining three or two remaining two and then remaining one totaling three which obviously you know the justice system needed to do its due diligence and that's that's the way it works but she kept on saying you know how many times do you have to kill me why do i have to go back to trial for you to kill me over and over and over again. She's like, you're just doing this because you want to get reelected. Well, she should have pleaded guilty then. Right. And she <laughs> well, that's a good point. Right. Only do it once. How many times are you going to bring me back here to kill me? Oh, that's interesting. Right. How many well, times you, are you going to kill somebody? You Shit. Have, you have each case that needs to be adjudicated. You, you can't just right. not punish uh you know give out that punishment for that person that wasn't murdered oh sure but like right. in her well, mind I mean, she was like why articulated my thought much better you know I, I know it has to go through the process and like you said it has to be adjudicated. you can't just not right but the fact that she pleaded no contest meant that she had to go to trial. Yeah. yeah and then but I mean, I guess you still have to go through sentencing. No, no contest. There is no trial. Oh. Then you just get you're one of the judges. it up to the jury of peers no, to determine no. if you're guilty or not guilty. No, there's no trial. When you plead no oh. contest, the judge sentences you. So she's uh, just going back for There's sentencing. only a trial if you plead not guilty. Okay. When okay. you plead no contest or guilty... You, there's no trial. You get sentenced. Well, no. So I think, I think what it was is that when they brought her back for sentencing, because she, you know, she had fired her, yeah, um, her attorney, her appeals attorney. I think when they brought her back, you know, because of the media frenzy, it was televised, and that was her opportunity to say. You know, how many times are you going to bring me back in here to kill me? Like, just leave me. In, I don't want to leave the jail. Leave me in the jail. Uh, how many times you had to kill somebody? I'd have been like, how many? Well, how many people did you kill? That's how many times we going to bring you back. One hundred percent. Yes. I know what you would have said. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. Going back to what you said about when you plead no contest, um, that you just get with the judge sentence you based on what, like all the facts that the judge has because you don't put on a trial so there's nothing right. brought in they take if you're charged with first degree murder and you plead no contest you get that conviction there's just nothing on the record that says that you said i did it yeah. or that you were found guilty that's so interesting. Like you would just go in and the judge would say it's yeah. retarded because most of the time people only plead no contest to speeding tickets. That's, uh, that's exactly what they did. And she's like, just leave me in the jail. Don't bring me here. No. Well, they have to. No, bitch. You killed all those people over and over and over. You have to go over and over and over. Like, well, that's how that works. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just no contest means they're not contesting right. the crime. No low contendo or whatever. 
Is that like yes. the, an Alfred plea? No. That's after you're already convicted. Like, I just want to go back to jail. Yeah, well, because it was what breaking her stride. She had to like leave to go to trial. Yeah, okay, well, wow. Suck uh, we it up, Buttercup. Yeah, she's gone, so she goodbye. She had things to do. She didn't want to go back to the courthouse. <laughs> right, her. can't be bothered with that. I mean, and she obviously blames the Prawleys for... Yeah, her. that was fucked up. I never knew about that part. That's pretty okay, crazy. Okay, so that's why I chose to tell from that vantage point because I found it so incredibly wacky. Yeah. Well, just, you know, they, they see a vulnerable person in a situation that they can take advantage of and then they use mm-hmm. 100%. Their yeah. To manipulate yes i know it's fucked up you know and finally she's like yeah now i know that everyone was into me for money but you know why because now we know you're a serial killer you know you killed people why else would they be into her i mean (laughs) Do you think, I mean, right. at 35, did she really think that she was being adopted? Like, right. To be taken care of? Yeah. I didn't know it was a thing to be adopted. Yeah, an adult. Yeah, I've heard of that before. There's a whole show on the Discovery. Yeah, that's where I've heard it. Network. I mean, do you, okay. is it being adopted so you can inherit? Producer, can you adopt me? <laughs> you don't want him to be your adopted parent. Nope. No. You've got, you've got, you've got a dad. Just go see him. <laughs> okay, I guess we're done here, right? So you should take. Well, I just wanted stuff. to say thank you for um, bringing me back thank and giving you me this opportunity. So oh, thanks this for really being good. here, and thanks everybody for listening. Yes. Oh yeah. Did you turn us that off? Shell's out right there. No, I thought you turned us off. No. Anyway, everybody, thank you for listening, hanging in there. Um, I know it, it's long in between episodes, and really don't intend it to be that way. We just have crazy lives right now, but um, we still push through, and we'll still be here. And thanks for being here with us. Good night. Good night. Good night. And remember to keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. Huh? <laughs> You've been listening to Southern Discomfort with April and Christine. As you can tell, this is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. So we want you to be able to reach out to us. Send emails to Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, at Southern Discomfort Podcast. And on Instagram, at Southern Discomfort PC. And for shows, visit southerndiscomfort.podbean.com. And this podcast can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. This is Southern Discomfort. Signing off. (laughs) (laughs) She christied. (laughs) I was like, do do do. Oh, it's my turn. Do we want to pause and wait for the frog? <laughs> He's cranked it up, didn't he? Are y'all ready for this? 
Are you afraid of this? 